1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Diplomatic History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Pace, the host of the channel. Our guest today is Michael Doyle, University Professor of International Affairs, Law, and Political Science at Columbia University, and a visiting fellow at the American Academy Berlin. He's had a distinguished career in teaching and public service, and he's the author of a dozen books on international relations. Today, we'll be talking about his newest book, Cold Peace Avoiding the New Cold War, which was published in 2023 by W.W. Norton and Company. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Delighted to join you. I was wondering if you would begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Um, uh, the, the shortest version of it, I was born in Hawaii right after World War II. Um, I was raised in a family that lived mostly overseas in Europe. My dad was loaned to the Foreign Service. And uh, my interest in international relations came, I suspect, just from those sources. I studied it intensively. In college, I spent some time at the Air Force Academy in Colorado. Then I transferred, finished my education at Harvard. And I've been interested in international politics ever since and a mixed a teaching career at uh, Princeton, Johns Hopkins and Columbia with a school in with, a, with some time in international public affairs. I helped to run a small think tank in New York and then I was Kofi Annan's uh, special advisor for policy planning when I served as an assistant secretary general in the UN uh, a number of years ago. So I've always been interested in international politics. Uh, Much of it took place during the Cold War, and uh, much to my real concern, I see elements of things that resemble, in certain regards, the Cold War reemerging today, and that's the motivation for writing this book.
1: Obviously, this book has taken a tremendous amount of thinking about international relations and the role of the United States and uh, what its relationship with Uh, Russia and China in particular, look like uh, in the coming years. Um, To understand our our current moment, you have to understand the 1990s, as I think you highlight really well in your book. Can you talk us through what happened in the 90s and how did those events lead to uh, the current conflict?
0: Okay. I think the first thing we should think about the 90s is that, in many respects, those were good times for the United States in particular. Uh, now, the good times didn't last. And that's the, the problem, the story that we need to look at. But think of the good times. You know, We were the, just about the globally acknowledged uh, global superpower you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a widespread sense of dynamism in the global economy. And a good deal of that was being fueled right in the US from the computer internet uh, Silicon Valley revolution. So globalization was out there. And according to the the tag, globalization was good, especially for the US during that period. And the world experienced uh, something like a a deep detente, That is, Gorbachev, you know, abandoned the Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union itself collapsed. Gorbachev memorably said that human rights are not Western, they're global, they belong to all of us. Chinese uh, were engaged in borrowing capitalism and within their own country, there emerged uh, a democratic movement of young people that, that culminated in the Tiananmen demonstration in 1989 the world looked like it was coming together on the basis of uh, democracy, capitalism, human rights with US leadership. Now that's not to say there weren't a lot of serious, serious problems out there. You know, Think of the horrible slaughters in Rwanda in 1994 and the yes. ongoing conflict in the Balkans. But nonetheless, at the global scale, the world was strikingly peaceful. And then what happened somewhere Roughly 2010, 2012, a lot of this became uncertain and became to fall apart. Uh, We had increasing inequality in some of the leading capitalist economies, including our own, and that emerged in the 90s and exacerbated in, in the aughts. Uh, We had the rise of Chinese power, you know, growing at six or seven percent a year of GDP with a population triple the U.S., very heavy investment. We saw the emergence of another potential superpower to challenge the U.S. And then Russia's attempt at democracy under Yeltsin went deeply south when Mr. Putin took over and began to establish a pretty hard line. Uh, dictatorship that has popularity, but nonetheless a dictatorship based upon uh, assassinations, oppression, media control, deep corruption throughout the economy. The world began to look a lot more dangerous starting about that 2010, 2012 period. And we saw a number of major events that we could get into that were hallmarks of that, uh, you know, including Putin's uh, takeover in 20, 2008 of the Northern provinces of Georgia, his invasion of Crimea in 2014. And then of course, by the time we get to our own times, you know, 2022, with the invasion of Ukraine, all of the tension with China, we're in a very different looking world that looks a bit like that emerging style of conflict that we saw way back during the Cold War, you know, back in the period 1948 to 1990.
1: And that's what worries me. That's what motivates the book. What do we call this current state of affairs, old war, a hot peace, a cool war, a warm piece. Um, what, what, what is this? And and or, and what are we, why do you feel like we're headed towards potentially a new cold war?
0: Okay. As, as you nicely mentioned, there's all sorts of labels out there by very good scholars. The ones that you listed, I can put names to in my own mind because I've read their work. And that's because the the time is uncertain. It's not as if we're in crystal clarity the way we were by, let's say, 1950, where the world was radically divided and we all knew it, you know. The world is now much more ambiguous. Uh, Why I say we're headed towards the, the potential of a new Cold War And we'll actually get into a new Cold War unless we have some really good detente like diplomacy to create a cold peace. So here are the labels. You know, the diplomatic history community knows what a hot war is that's a kinetic armed conflict over things like territory and political independence. We know what a a Cold War is, and that's a conflict, a fundamental conflict over territory, political independence, legitimacy, but not through direct armed force. You know, during the Cold War, uh, the US and the Soviet Union had almost no major kinetic armed conflicts. Uh, A little bit over North Korea and the air, and a lot of indirect proxy wars, you know, like Korea, Vietnam, and many others, but no direct conflict. That's a Cold War. A lot of tension, contest over legitimacy, Uh, And especially implicating issues like territorial integrity and political independence. On the better end of things, we could have a warm peace. Let's call it a warm peace to create some more labels. And that's the kind of peace that you see amongst countries that respect each other. You know, they compete over industrial goods and exports, sure. but they basically respect each other. Think of the U.S. and Canada, think of any of the European relationships, Germany and France and England and Spain, they're in a warm peace. Uh, a cold peace, what I'm trying to achieve with Russia and China is a continued acknowledgement of major differences, rivalries over power, other forms of competition, differences in domestic political regimes, a lack of shared legitimacy. We don't think Putin's government is a very decent government. We're very suspicious of the the autocracy and the corporatism that is the state control of the Chinese economy. So we don't trust each other, but we have strong interest to reducing the tension for the sake of cooperation. And that's, it's like a detente. The detente in the late 80s with the Soviet Union was short and brief and a little uncertain. We're looking for a long-term detente, and that's the label that attached to a cold peace.
1: So what are the characteristics of this uh, new Cold War that we could be entering? And and how do we know it when we see it?
0: Yeah, we we see it when uh, the level of tension goes up. Uh You know, we have the normal conflicts out there. You know, is it Airbus or is it Boeing that some country buys for its airliner? That's absolutely normal stuff. It occurs all the time. Here we see questioning legitimacy and perceiving the other sides as threat. That's the basic grounding to it. I could get into a little later, what what are the root sort of causes and sources of this, But we can see a lot of indicators of it, and we can see it in cyber warfare. You know, we're not shooting at the Russians or the Chinese, but in the cyber realm, we've got all sorts of uh, very nefarious and scary activity, ranging from criminal ransomware, you know, uh, criminals take over and ransom uh, uh, access to uh, technology, A colonial pipeline was one that was closed down by a group called Dark Side, which looks like it was supported by Russia. We've seen similar kinds of penetrations on the cyber front in a lot of different ways. Uh, We see state-directed sabotage, the way the Russians did to Ukraine in 2014, trying to bring down their whole electric grid. They nearly succeeded, and it doesn't. It's not just one way. It's what we and the Israelis did to the Iranians, you know, way back with something called Stuxnet, Stuxnet. when we undermined their uh, facilities to produce enriched uranium. It's also ongoing espionage. You know, the Chinese have been penetrating the American government, American corporations like Microsoft. Our friends up in Canada allege that China tried to tilt the 2021 election against the Conservatives by flooding information to the Chinese uh, Canadian community, most of which was false. So we see this electoral interference in our own country, 2016. uh, President Putin tried to interfere in the U.S. election in 2016. Uh, We have good evidence of that. Now, that doesn't mean Mr. Trump wasn't legitimately elected. He was elected. The American voters voted for him. But Mr. Putin was trying to manipulate that by the information that he was releasing, by penetrating various electoral systems. He didn't corrupt our election processes, but he did try to corrupt our information space uh, going after Hillary Clinton. So we get political subversion. And of course then there are proxy wars, Ukraine being the most significant one. That's a war between Ukraine and Russia, but most people in Western Europe and the United States think that the Ukrainians in in some indirect way are protecting the kind of safe world that we the Americans want to have in Europe and that the Europeans want. And Putin sees himself not really fighting Ukraine, though he's trying to conquer the country, Trying to undermine the American world order. And so it's a proxy war, uh, not totally unlike what happened in Vietnam or uh, in South Korea uh, or in Korea. So all of these are the, the axes of confrontation. And it produces real tension, uh, whereby you know our friends in the CIA and the Defense Department think that we're not engaged in a physical war with Russia or China, but in the cyber realm, in the hybrid realm, we're really fully mobilized and so are they. And that's that's and the big worry, of course, is that this might escalate into a kinetic, you know, a real war. I think it's unlikely. I think deterrence, nuclear deterrence is very powerful. But this is not dealing with the tension. The tension is persistent and it's in that cyber realm information war subversion all of that is taking place
1: so you spend a lot of time in your book talking about what you what you refer to as the sources of this conflict um, wanted to get into that a little bit more what what do Russia and China want?
0: Well there's two big sources and that affects their wants and our wants at the same time the two okay. big sources are one geopolitics and number two, let's call them incompatible domestic political and economic systems. And it's the two things together. You take one out, the world would be safer. Anyone out in the world would be safer. But it's the two together that's the real problem. On the geopolitics, it's it's the simple story. It's the rise of China. Uh, former teacher of mine, Graham Allison, has got a very good book. He calls the Thucydides trap where he talks about how difficult it is to maintain geopolitical stability when you've got one established power and a rising power challenging it. And he says that he's identified 16 historical episodes and in only four of them has has there been a peaceful resolution of that hegemonic rivalry. And of course the candidates today are the rising China, and the U.S. as the established uh, superpower. And China wants to uh, take advantage of the existing order and become prosperous, but the fear in Washington is that once China, or if China became number one, it would radically change the international order in a way that would be very harmful to long-run American interest. And so we're afraid. We, From the Chinese point of view, they see this superpower out there with uh, taking all sorts of advantages from this international order, and they want to change it so it's more friendly to their own interest. Um, And they're worried that this might turn into a war. They're worried that the superpower would strike to prevent their rise. We're worried that once the Chinese get too strong, they will strike and knock over our international order. And those are real worries. The thing that worries me as much as the reality, that is the power shifts, which, by the way, are a little ambiguous when you drill down into what's happening into the Chinese economy and the American economy. Uh, But nonetheless, it's the information world that gets created with that geopolitical drive. That is, the U.S. has an inherent incentive to sound the alarm. the Chinese are just trying to destroy the world. Let's mobilize everybody against them. And the Chinese have an inherent incentive to pretend as if, no, we have no interest in turning over the world order. We love everybody. We just want to cooperate peacefully. And so when either of those two powers say those things, it gets discounted. We don't believe the Chinese are accommodating even when they say so. And a lot of other states think that we're being alarmist and that the Chinese aren't so dangerous. So we have an information incompatibility that also raises tension. So the first thing is geopolitics. It's the rise of China. Um, the other question, however, is that our domestic systems are radically different and they don't get along well. Uh, I, I In the book, I call the, the Russians and the Chinese... Uh, corporatist nationalist autocracies corporatist in that both of them have their economies centrally controlled they're not communist you know they're capitalist but the central political power putin and g is able to control through the use of credit through labor regulations through uh, uh, permits for construction and loans of capital and allocations of ownership in the Russian case, the economy. So they really do answer to the central power, uh, and they're highly uh, autocratic. They both run quasi dictatorships. Putin is not unpopular, nor is Xi, but neither e- ever holds a free and fair election that somebody could reasonably run against on fair terms. Doesn't exist, and they're hypernationalist. Uh, Chinese nationalism is a reflection of its long history of having been oppressed by Western imperialists, the Japanese, the Americans, the British, the French, and many others, and a determination that that never happened again, that they become number one. And the Russians also saw the collapse of the Soviet empire, and they're very angry about that. And then Putin has adopted this whole new line of old-fashioned russian conservatism orthodoxy and the opposition to anything having to do with you know equal rights for women or gays or anything else that putin sees as part of the corrupting ideology of the liberal west we on the other hand are liberal capitalist and democratic our ideology is one of uh, Our ideology is one of equal rights. We don't always live up to that, but that's our ideology. Uh, We're democratic, you know, as pretty much that is, our elections are far from perfect as we all know, but they do take place and they're pretty open and they're often surprising. Uh, And we're capitalists, that is that, you know, we have social protections, but by and large, it's the private ownership of the means of production. And most of the economy operates not completely independently, but a step removed from the directions that come out of uh, Washington or similar things for Germany, France, and the UK. And that's not good for for relations. Democracies and autocracies tend not to trust each other. They, we regard the autocracies as uh, uh, exploitative and oppressive, oppressing their own people. Uh, We believe in human rights as a global uh, entitlement. Everyone has human rights, including the Uyghurs, including the Chechens, including, importantly, the Ukrainians. Uh, It's not just divided by national borders. And capitalist companies don't get along or are able to cooperate well with corporatist corporations that have the backing of governments in Beijing or Moscow that tilt the playing field. So there's never an arm's length economic transaction. If you're negotiating with a Chinese company, you're negotiating behind the scenes with the Chinese intelligence operat. And the same thing with Moscow and the American corporations don't like it and they protest. They still make money in China, needless to say, but they don't like the playing field that they have to operate on. And all of these builds tensions. If if China weren't strong, we could manage that, you know, just by putting it off to the side. It is strong and growing. If China were liberal, capitalist and democratic, We wouldn't have many difficulties with it. We don't have difficulties with the EU, which has an economy much bigger than that of the Chinese economy. And so we get along fine with them. It's the the combination of geopolitical tension coming from the rise of China with the different social, economic, and political systems that produce the distrust that we feel. That's that's at least the take uh, that's the theme of the book.
1: You also note in uh, in in your chapter where you sort of break apart the the billiard ball of liberal capitalist democracies, um, mm-hmm. you you point out that in some ways it seems like the the challenge isn't just a rising China, um, because liberal democracy seem to have won the global conflict of the twentieth century. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if if we see the twentieth century as a as a sort of global conflict of ideology between, you know, liberal democracy and communism and fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, with the end of the Cold War, it looked very much like liberal democracy had prevailed. And, you know, Francis Fukuyama famously uh, writes this uh, treatise, this book, about mm-hmm. how history has ended and uh, yeah. and democracy has triumphed. And yet, now there seems to be w- w- what you call a democratic recession, And so it seems as if it's not just a not only a geopolitical challenge from a a rising, uh, more aggressive, more assertive China, but also that uh, the democracies who seem to have won the the contest of the 20th century are now creating a little bit places like Turkey, Venezuela, Poland, Hungary. Um, do, Do you... Is, is that an accurate assessment? And Definitely. Do, you, you know, do you see that as being related to, um, you know, what we might think of as our current populist moment, mm-hmm. Donald Trump in the United States, uh, Bolsonaro mm-hmm. in Brazil, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, and our, Argentina's recent elections too?
0: Right. Yeah, no, I, that is part of the problem. That is, It's not as if, you know, we're on a roll. <laughs> so to speak, uh, as as the democracies sort of were in the 90s. Uh, democracy is in a recession, so to, a global recession. We're on our back foot rather than moving forward. Uh, there's been a little good news, I should mention. The election in Poland a few weeks ago took a government that was running in a right-wing populist direction and moved it back to the democratic center. But globally, you know, if we looked at Hungary with Orban, at Turkey with Erdogan, uh, again, you, you mentioned Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, now Lula is back, I think, fortunately. We go across to Argentina, and then we, we have a very strange combination of, of right-wing populism and hyper-capitalism. It's an odd, odd mix. Yeah. But across the world, and even in the established democracies, you know, there's Le Pen in in France. There's AfD. AfD is now up to twenty percent in the polls here in Germany. You know, which is a step step forward. Uh, we have we have uh, you know Prime Minister Maloney, who was elected in Italy. Fortunately for all of us, she. Change stripes <laughs> the moment after the election. Now she's a dedicated NATO advocate, strong supporter of the EU. And that's partly because the EU constrains uh, what populists can do in that context, but globally not the case. And as you just mentioned, in, in the US, we have uh, you know Mr. Trump running again for office in the lead in the Republican party. And his ideas and style of leadership and past actions are really egregious, you know, given the past history of both the Republican Party and the American Republic. He talks about things that have been anathema uh, about, you know, you know, he may stay around forever, you know, he challenges the le- legitimacy of elections. He talks about uh, weaponizing the Justice Department uh, go after his enemies, dealing with the press. And you know, I hope your podcast survives. <laughs> All of these threats are out there and we don't know how serious he is, frankly. But right. the last time that we said that he was a joker, we nonetheless had some pretty egregious actions, the most serious of which was, of course, January the 6th of 2021 which was quite amazing, you know, in American history. That's not the way we normally do transitions. And uh, so people are rightly alarmed for all of those reasons. So then you put that, you know, sense of lack of confidence in the, let's call it the democratic liberal project with the rise of China's geopolitical power, which will suddenly produce, you know, a center of the world economy that leans in those directions, uh, there will be in some trouble. I, I have one passage in the book. It's only a few sentences. If I could read that to you, which I think really oh, gets right at what you're asking about. And this is on the bottom of page uh, 151. And it's, it runs, the deeper source of conflict is defensive. The United States and its allies do not want to impose democracy by force. They want to make a world, quote unquote, a world safe for democracy in which national security is affordable, elections are secure, markets are free and in which human rights remain an ideal. China and Russia, correspondingly, seek a world safe for autocracy. In which governments are free to have or not have elections, the state exerts control over the economy, and no one outside the government questions state policy. Both sides are threatened because these two systemic visions are incompatible. That, I think, is the, the message I was trying to convey in that combination of geopolitics and domestic transnational politics. That's what I was trying to get at.
1: And because of the challenge of China and Russia, this uh, uh, the Chinese rival, you call it, and the Russian rogue, um, yeah. you you take us back in your book to a, a time in the 1930s where you see a lot of parallels between uh, mm-hmm uh, Mussolini and Italian fascism and Japanese militarism in Asia, um, which I think is a, a a fascinating comparison. Um, but you also you, you, point out a number of times that, um, Xi is not Mao and uh, Putin (laughs) is not Stalin and thankfully nobody is Hitler. Um, and so you, instead of, um, instead of going back to the 1930s and warning that, um, uh, we could be on the verge of a, a third world war. Uh, you provide, I think, a lot of hope and optimism by suggesting that there are compromises that uh, all sides could take that would uh, diffuse tensions and lead to a, a long-term détente, as you call it. Yeah. Um, what What are some of those compromises um, that that the United States, in particular, might have to make in order to achieve a cold peace?
0: Yeah. Let me back up for just one second to why I think it's possible to make these compromises, because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, that's just, uh, you know, whistling by the graveyard or something like that to try in this direction. And I don't think so. Because as you just mentioned, we have a real rivalry, ideological, economic, geopolitical with, with Russia and China. But, you know, they're not like Stalinist communism or Maoist communism, and nor are they anything like Hitler. They're a little bit like Mussolini, which is the chapter you referred to that I talk about. But in that chapter, I talk about all the complexities. You know, the big difference is is that none of these states are communist and communism and capitalism are radically, radically incompatible. Corporatism and capitalism just have difficulties dealing with each other, big difference. A factoid for for your listeners, there are more billionaires in China today than there are in the U.S. (laughs) Now, our billionaires are richer, uh, and it's a very different relationship between their corporations and their government. But nonetheless, uh, this is not like communism, which was designed to revolutionize the whole world. China wants to become prosperous and powerful. And that's it's a it's a it's a different set of values. The other thing is that we have a, an immense rational interest in cooperating with Russia and China. Cold War one, you know, nineteen forty eight to nineteen ninety, cost the U.S. alone $11 dollars in in competition with uh, the Soviet Union. And this was a, a country with a population, you know, a little less than our own and growing much less quickly. Imagine how much would have to be spent if we get into an arms race with China, which has a population three times ours. And right now is still, the data is confused, growing roughly one and a half times what we're growing at. There's a, a long-term future. Of immense arms racing and all the waste that that would involve, given what we need to spend to successfully do the transition to a sustainable climate, deal with the likely emergence of more pandemics. This is, COVID was very unlucky to have been the last global pandemic. And and a much more dynamic world where people will be, if we don't deal with climate well, chased out of the hot tropics and be forced to move into other climate zones, including Europe and North America. There's a lot of tension. We're going to need a lot of resources, a lot of leadership to manage the world, even if we don't have a Cold War. If we have a Cold War, all of the resources we need to manage those challenges is going to be problematic. So what do we need to do? You know, we need to make some difficult choices on things like Taiwan. Uh, We need to acknowledge that uh, the Chinese people uh, might want to someday unify. It's not something we can rule out. What we'd like to rule in is the acknowledgement that that unity might take place, but also put on the table that it would only be done peacefully. You know, Going back to an understanding from the 1990s that there's only one China, and that uh, if China, if Beijing can persuade Taipei, we will not stand in any way or encourage any resistance to a peaceful unification. That's still not going to make China happy. There's still going to be tensions. And so we're going to need to focus on arms control. We're going to need to acknowledge that China will become a major naval and air power in the Western Pacific and that they will have increased influence. But we still want to keep the seas open, the South China Sea, even the Taiwan Strait. To enhance Chinese security, we might come to confidence building measures to say that, okay, if you tell us where your fleets are moving, we'll tell you where our fleets are moving once we get to a relationship that's more cooperative so that there are fewer surprises and to persuade the Chinese to stand down from the intimidation of Taiwan. Now, I don't know if this is gonna work, but things like this would need to be put on the table in order to get China to cooperate on things like trade and uh, climate that we desperately need. We need to say to them that we're going to pose no threat to China. There'll be no subversion by us in China, and we don't expect them to do subversion to us. We need to go back to those kinds of tropes that were developed when we spoke to Gorbachev Uh, way back in the 1980s to calm down the system. Again, no guarantee, but we should try. When we get to Ukraine, we need to support Ukraine's uh, uh, valiant and heroic campaign to preserve their national existence. Uh, uh, We would encourage them to win back as much of their territory as they possibly can and support them militarily in doing so. But if it becomes difficult, uh, we should whisper in Zelensky's ear that maybe Crimea is a little different from the rest of Ukraine. It might actually want to be Russian. It has a different history. And that maybe he would consider settling for a compromise that led to a referendum for Ukraine, a possibility if if zelensky rejects it we're not going to we shouldn't abandon him he's fighting for the survival of his country he's putting his own people on the line but if he's looking for any advice down the way or any long run support that might be something that we'd put on the table in return for something like nato membership or the europeans with eu membership as a way to settle the ongoing conflict with russia on terms that might be livable for all sides. Again, no guarantee that'll work. It's just something we need to try.
1: And you talked about having a negotiated settlement in Ukraine and making sure that there is no negotiation about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, But I've wondered whether there might be some sort of uh, good pro quo in Ukraine where um, you know, the United States could guarantee that Ukraine would never join NATO in return for Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, is, it, is there any possibility of that?
0: I think we should be open to proposals from Zelensky. Uh, you know if uh, if Putin would give up all of his conquest and Zelensky was on board with that, we might promise that uh, Ukraine wouldn't join NATO. I think that's pretty unlikely. A more likely uh, trade would be uh, to Zelensky saying, look, if you're willing to stop short of Crimea and have a referendum there to determine the ownership of the country, the Crimeans should be the people to decide, then you get NATO membership. So you'll have deep, long-run security. And then you get EU membership, very valuable. Putin walks off with Crimea uh, and, and uh, Ukraine joins Europe and NATO. And that would be another compromise. But we need to have, as I mentioned, as you just quoted, making sure that Zelensky's in the driver's seat. This is nothing above his head. This is something that he uh, designs, talking to Europeans, talking to Putin, uh, as a long run future for his country. I I put this on the table because I think the evidence of the past six months is that it's going to be very difficult for Ukraine to reconquer Crimea. And it should be pretty clear to Putin by now that there will be a Ukraine, Uh, that Ukraine is not going to disappear off the map. It's not going to rejoin the great czarist uh, empire as a happy part of Russia. None of those things are realistic. And so somewhere along the way, we need, led by Zelensky, to be thinking about some kind of compromises, which are viable. And it could take a a number of different forms.
1: You also proposed that we need to do
0: in order to move us into a world. Where we could someday in the future sit down with uh, Moscow and Beijing and talk about arms control, try try Mm -hmm. trilateral arms control. We'll put some ceilings on nukes, ceilings on uh, large-scale capital ships, ceilings on the size of air fleets, so that we can all be secure and have good, you know, stable second strike deterrence. And that'll mean that China will have to grow and the US and Russia will have to stay somewhat where they are, uh, and we won't get into an arms race. You know, that's also important.
1: You also proposed that the United States could create or um, enlist, I suppose, a, a caucus of democracies, not a, not a league of democracies like John mm-hmm. McCain had advocated um, in response to this, this threat by Russia and China. Be, yeah. Because, and I don't, and I wondered about this too, in, in this classic scenario where the united states is confronted with um two rivals or two adversaries um the the, the common tactic i would think would be to split them split right. uh china's and and russia's relationship as uh, right. as nixon and kissinger attempted to do during the the 70s um right. but you've you've proposed something different yeah. um and you Talk a little bit about what a caucus of democracies would entail, and 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 my question too is why isn't that the same thing as a kind of diplomatic NATO? Um, and and
0: very similar. And, to and a, doesn't
1: doesn't that run the same sort of risk of exacerbating uh, tensions yeah. with Russia and China?
0: Yeah. If 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 Russia and China could be split, that would be a good strategy. I think it's very unlikely. You know, uh, Xi has had a number of opportunities. He's not enthusiastic about the war in Ukraine, but he is committed to his uh, consortium, his his, uh, entente uh, with uh, Putin. And they're fostering around the world a world safe for other autocracies. And there, you know, alternative sources of financing, alternative sources of weapons, alternative sources of trade and investment, uh, and it's all done without any of the usual uh, uh, connections to good governance, etc. That comes from a World Bank loan. Uh, so it's a, a different system. And so they're aligning. Iran is now leaning quite significantly. Hamas is leaning towards uh, Putin. Putin used to be Netanyahu's big buddy. (laughs) We've seen that shift take place pretty strongly. So the world is dividing. And so it makes some sense for the democracies to cultivate some of their similarities, ideological, political, and that's already happening. This is not a new idea. We've seen this in the formation of the Quad out in the Pacific, uh, which has joined uh, the major uh, democratic powers together out there with the, with the U.S. So we see Japan and Australia, uh, New Zealand, stretch India, and then stretching to smaller powers like New Zealand, attempting to get to South Korea, all involved in a grouping. And they're beginning to link up. You know, the German Air Force does training missions out in the Pacific these days. You know, that's pretty striking. So we're forming uh, uh, an, an understanding. It's only a diplomatic understanding that we have some common interest, especially while the autocratic powers are linked together, and we should cultivate them. And so the Germans, for example, should think not just about Putin, which is their major concern, but also about Xi. And that's difficult for them because they have very profitable investments in China. But the long run interest is to make sure that Xi and Putin don't gang up to wreck the international order that we've all been benefiting from. And so the world is slightly dividing up in that way. And this is a diplomatic, uh, you know, caucus that we're forming where they agreed NATO and the Quad talk to each other regularly. Uh, That's the kind of of an alignment that I'm talking about. Finding ways to wean India, which loves Russia, uh, away from its historic ties uh, to Russia, which are very profitable for the Indians. Right now, they're just slurping away at uh, Russian oil and gas that's coming to them cheaper than available anywhere else in the world. But nonetheless, they also know that they have a dangerous neighbor with China, and they want the US to align behind them if China becomes more and more provocative. So we're slowly putting together an autocratic caucus uh, led by Russia and China. And we need to respond with a democratic caucus, an informal uh, grouping with regional formal groupings like NATO and the Quad and others that begin to cooperate globally. That's what, that's what I'm suggesting. Not, not what John McCain suggested, an alternative to the UN that somehow or other acquires legal powers to engage in cross-border uses of force. All of that is off the table. Nobody is prepared to sign up for that. Not even Washington from what I can see at the present time.
1: Well, your book certainly offers a a, a good deal of optimism and and realism, some realistic solutions um, for the coming years, uh, but thank you so much for for taking the time to meet with us today. I know we've taken up a, a good portion of your uh, evening in Berlin, so thanks again for uh, for being on the show. Um, can you? And it's been a real briefly... pleasure for me. Great to speak with you. <laughs> it's great to see you. Um, can you tell us just briefly what you are working on next?
0: Yes, I'm doing a revision of a book I published in 1997. It was called Ways of War and Peace. It looks at the big philosophers. And ask them what they can teach us about war and peace. So it looks at the Hobbes and realism, the balance of power, and uh, you know Locke and Smith and Kant and the democratic peace and Marx and Lenin, and we and we look at uh, global social solidarity. That was the book, 1997. What it's missing? There's nothing on fascism in 1997. I naively thought fascism died in 1945 on the battlefields of the Pacific and in Europe. So it was long gone. It's back, you know, in subtle ways, sometimes in the form of right-wing populism. But in other ways, you know, what we see in Putin, for example, and in Xi, is closer to Mussolini than it is to Marx and Lenin, or Stalin, for that matter, or Mao. And so we're dealing in this world of sort of democratic right-wing populism and autocratic right-wing populism, which is very similar to fascism. So I need a chapter on fascism. The other chapter that I've added is a growing realization that the strategic predicament of the newly independent countries after World War II, the global south, was significantly different, facing dual changes of dual challenges rather of sovereignty, both at home, which is very problematic and overseas against the former empires and prosperity. How does one get prosperity in a globalized economy? So I'll be having little sections on Nehru and Senghor, Steve Biko and uh, others, Mao, to talk about the, the, the challenges of post-colonial independence and prosperity. So those are the two new chapters that'll come
1: in. I've got a lot of writing to do, frankly, but I am working on it. Well, it sounds like a great project. Thank Thanks you. again for, uh, for being on the show. My pleasure, Andrew. Great speaking with you.